0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. It's so in our Bibles of 1 Corinthians 13. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name's Mark, and I get to be one of the ministers here at the church. We are glad you're with us, and we're in a series called The Cruciformed Life, looking at how the, the man on the cross and the work of the cross shapes the way we live our lives and who we become. If you were with us here last week, I preached a message, and in a deep theological moment, I compared the church to a, to a lasagna. And then on Monday of last week, someone delivered me a delicious lasagna at the house. And all week long, I was getting pictures of your lunches and your dinners and how I inspired you. So today, the church is like a big red pickup truck given to a preacher, okay? (laughs) Do with that what you need to. All right, and for our college students here today, we want you to know that even though you're here second hour, after third hour across in our student center north, we're beginning college lunches today. If you didn't hear about that, you're more than welcome to run into town and come back for a free lunch, but in the future going forward, if the health conditions persist and we're able to do this, we wanna provide lunch for our college students who come from Pitt State and Southern and uh, Ozark, and so you're welcome to come to the worship center, or to the student center, rather, uh, after third hour, and lunch will be provided there, okay. Last week, we did talk about unity. We talked about how spiritual gifting was being a disunifying thing. And Paul was addressing to this church that had a bunch of individualistic tendencies. They felt elite. They were, they were measuring themselves against one another to try and find out who were the real super spiritual and who weren't. And so in light of all of that, Paul begins this teaching. Now, what you just heard, read to us in the script is probably the most famous, most poetic, most practical, most useful, and most easy to memorize passage in all of this letter. It's about love. And yet it always must be, be connected and kept connected to what Paul is writing about when he wrote this. He wasn't writing just an individual chapter on what love is. He's actually talking about how love answers all the concerns that have been brought up in the entirety of this letter to these people. And I'm gonna show you how that's connected in just a few moments. But to understand what Paul's writing about, we have to begin with the nature of temporary gifts. We have to look at this from the very beginning. What is Paul dealing with is this chapter falls between chapters 12 and 14 of the letter, and in chapter 12 and 14, Paul is talking about the misuse of spiritual gifting as not a sign of how powerful you are, but why did God actually give those gifts? Was it for your good? Or was it for the common good? And we know from the scripture last week that it was simply based, completely based on the common good. In other words, no gift that God gives us is ever meant to be used simply for our own pleasure. It's been given to us as a gift and it's to be used for others every single time. You see, Paul is gonna give us wisdom. He's dropping wisdom today in a major way. But in our culture, we don't really want wisdom unless it makes us money or happy. And then we'll take wisdom. But if it's wisdom for wisdom's sake, we're not always sure we're open to it. Our whole culture rejects what's true so they can have feelings and reactions and get something from it. But Paul's wisdom here is apparent. And what he's sharing with us is gonna be a challenge to all of us. And not a challenge we can't overcome, but a challenge that's going to cost us something. It's gonna cost us sacrifice and commitment and purpose. But Paul's wisdom will produce fruit. It won't make you rich. It won't make you famous. It won't make you powerful, it'll make you useful. And this is why Paul is delivering it at this moment in time. It's a corrective also, to get this all set up properly. He is correcting behavior. In fact, you'll see it in just a little bit, but the church at Corinth, they were an impatient, unkind, selfish, elitist group. Over and over, they were designating what divided them, not what united them. And instead of being united around the authority of Jesus and his purpose, It all became about who had what, who was who, and how powerful you were. And so Paul then takes them through this letter. You might remember some of the things we've discussed so far. Paul talked to them about wisdom of the cross, how the cross doesn't make sense to the world, but in God's plan, he did the most wise thing in the most perfect way through Jesus on the cross. They were boasting in who their teachers were. Paul said, it doesn't matter who your teacher is, it's what is he teaching. What are they communicating about the gospel? They were rejoicing in evil. They had, they had a man sleeping with his stepmother, and they were acting like they were progressive for allowing it. And in chapter 5, Paul said, that man needs to be disciplined for bringing sin into the sanctity of the church. And then they were taking each other to court. They were insisting on their own way. They were causing people that wanted to follow Jesus to have difficulty following Jesus because the way they lived their lives They were acting and praying in such a way that when they gathered together for corporate worship, it was divided. The rich were the rich, the poor were the poor, and they didn't mingle together. They were not there for one another. Over and over, Paul keeps bringing up what they were struggling with, and his answer is, you lack love. You are lacking the love that God has united us around, and your spiritual gifts are significant, but they don't matter if there is no love. Let's begin in chapter 12, verse 31. I want you to notice the opening phrase here because it's what Paul will begin and end with in this text. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. So he has set them up to say, you're trying all of these measures to show who you are, how powerful, how spiritual you are, but let me show you that you're missing the greatest gift, the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. It's really interesting what he does here. In verse one, he says, if you do all this, you're just making noise. Second verse, he says, "You, you yourself are nothing actually while you're trying to prove yourself something. And in verse three, he says, and you gain nothing. The wisdom that Paul is dropping here won't won't make us rich or happy. It will make us useful. It will show that there is something in our lives that's different, something that's good, something that's lasting. Love. Love is a necessity apart from which nothing else in the Christian life matters. If there is no love, nothing will last. I keep hearing this phrase in the last 10 or 15 years. It's in some of the literature I read, it's in some of the books I listen to. It's over and over about leaving a legacy You have to leave a legacy, you have to do something that's gonna last far beyond your lifetime. And I believe that that matters. But I really wanna challenge us as a group of faith-based people who know who Jesus Christ is, the man on the cross and the work on the cross. How about we get in on Jesus' legacy because that'll last forever. Trying to live your own legacy won't last very long. Maybe a generation at the most. How many of us walk into buildings on state universities that are named after people and you don't even know who they are. But at one point in time, that name mattered but now it's just another name on another building as you go on with another life. So the legacy that Paul's calling us to is not a legacy that lifts our name up and our fame up. He's saying to the people of Corinth, the same thing he'd say to the people of Christ church. The opportunity you and I have in our lifetime will only be taken advantage of when there's love. And not a love that comes on a checklist to say I was loving today, but a love that actually makes the other person more important than yourself a love that Jesus offered. Because he says you can preach with great power and zeal and passion. You can have Bible knowledge and theological expertise. You can be in a small group. You can have a tight-knit group of friends. You can be radical in your giving. You can take care of the poor and the downcast. And all of those things are awesome. They're what we've been asked to do and become. But if it's not motivated by the love of God in us, which will always become the love of God for others, If the love of God is in us, it will always play itself out in the way we treat other people. If our purpose in life is to leave a legacy for our fame, Paul says you're just making noise and accomplishing nothing. But when we live in such a way that the glory of Jesus is shown and we love people the way we've been loved, we are actually living out the gospel and that changes eternity. Paul is not saying don't use your gifts and don't be sacrificial and don't do the things that I've asked you to do. He said do these things, but do them because of the love that compels you. That is where our unity will be found. That is where the message of the church will go outside of these walls into the community and make a difference. And these empty seats that sit around you this morning, those seats will be filled with people who understand that they were loved like you know you're loved, which drew you to this place on a Sunday morning to gather with other believers to be reminded of the truths that make your heart whole, the truths that change your eternity is the reason we gather and it's the reason why these seats that are empty could be filled with people if we loved well. Not just love so we feel good, but we love them so they would know the power of God and the hope. I want to jump down to verse eight. We'll come back to four through seven in a moment. Let's read eight through thirteen. Paul's telling them why he's teaching this. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. And then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You see, they thought they had spiritually arrived. They were speaking in the tongues of angels, they thought. They were, th- they were speaking what they thought would be the language of heaven. They were prophesying, they were performing miracles, they were doing some amazing things. And in the midst of all of this, Paul says, yes, but you understand that these things are temporary. These gifts that you're possessing, these things that you're doing, you're not gonna speak in tongues in heaven. You're not gonna prophesy in heaven. All of it's gonna be fulfilled and complete and perfect. We're gonna worship and love one another and serve one another. So let's focus on the things we're gonna do forever, which is love God and love each other. Rather than get caught up in who has what skill or what power or what prestige. And then he uses two illustrations that totally makes sense to me. He said, remember when you were like a child and you thought like a child and you acted like a child and everybody went, yeah, because he or she's a child. But when you become older and more mature, you put away those things. I think about my life. When I was younger, it was really hard for me to admit this, but I was scared of the dark. And we had a two-story house, and I remember having to go upstairs. My dad would send me upstairs, and nobody else was up there, and it was after dark, and it was dark, and I was scared, and I hated going upstairs by myself. I would find reasons to leave lights on everywhere I went. drove my parents crazy. I'd always leave a light on in my closet because I didn't want that monster under the bed pulling me under in the middle of the night. I'd run upstairs three steps across the entirety of the house because I did not want to leave my feet on the ground and get caught by the monsters in the dark and now I'm a 55-year-old man who turns every light in the house off at 6 p.m. to save money, what happened? (laughs) I grew up. I'll turn off the lights in the kitchen, Heather will go right back in and turn them on. I follow her in, I've become my father. Well, I've matured. I realize there's nothing in the dark that I fear anymore. Why, because when I was a child, I thought like a child, and it was okay to think like a child when you're a kid. But as you become older, and Paul is equating this spiritually, he said, don't hold on to things that you think you need when God's wisdom is telling you you're not gonna need them. Hold on to those things that really matter. Become mature. Trust him. And then he says, and you look in a mirror and you can see dimly, but one day you're gonna see HD, baby, face to face with God. As he knows you, you're gonna understand him. I don't know if that excites you or scares you, but it makes my tail wag. That HD, I'm gonna get God. And my mind's not going to blow up because right now, if God gave me a full dose of any part of who he was, I would deconstruct. But one day, seeing him face to face, and so Paul is saying, don't hold on to the temporary when the eternal is what we grasp. It's what we pursue, it's who we are. These temporary gifts are awesome. The greater gift is love. Pursue it. What is the nature of love? It's in the most famous passage of this scripture. Let's read it again Love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I wanna reread this. I'm gonna put it back on the screen and I wanna read it the way I think we should interpret it. Let's begin. God is patient, God is kind, God does not envy, God does not boast, God is not proud. God does not dishonor others, God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered, God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, God always trusts, God always hopes, God always perseveres. Make sense now? He's not giving us a list of things to do. He's actually challenging us to become like God. To live out what we've received, to take the greater gift, which is not speaking in tongues or prophesying or all of those other things that God has used and continues to use. But he's actually saying, but be the God who gave you those gifts. Live out the love that you received, not just using the gift to promote yourself and your own opinion of your power, your legacy, your prestige. Two primary characteristics before we look at depth in this description. The first is love is selfless. When I put God's name in for love, you can understand that love is the character of God and the way that God has dealt with you and I has been selfless rather than selfish. You see, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. It's arrogance, it's pride, it's boasting, it's seeking my way over your way. Love, according to Dallas Willard, my favorite definition of love is to seek the will or the goodwill of others. It's to live in such a way that I always will the good of you before I ever consider my own good. And that is selfless. When I think of what it means, I think according to the description that Paul gives, it's being patient when patience is difficult and not deserved. It's being kind when di- when kindness is difficult. It's not choosing how I appear in the eyes of others, but how I might help others see Jesus and see themselves in the eyes of Christ. It's it's not to love in such a noble, poetic, climb a mountain kind of way, it's actually the second part of this, and that is love is active. It is selfless and it is active. And the way that I wanna point this out is, Paul does not give us a definition of love, he gives us a description. He uses 15 verbs. This is not a philosophy, this is actionable items. It's the way to live this out. Just like God has demonstrated his love for us, we can demonstrate God's love for other people. Now who I took out of that triangle was you and me. I don't want people to know my love for them until they've understood Jesus' love for them. And then my love can be helpful and encouragement to help them walk in the right path, to understand why sacrificing for the kingdom is not only noble, it's brilliant, it's wise, it's what Paul is offering us. You see, love seeks its happiness in the good of others because it's selfless, because it's active. So Paul shows us in a description how God has applied his love and how you and I may also. So let's look at the actions of love. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus said, by this will people know that you're my disciples if you love one another? Now, I don't wanna parse this verse as you see it on the screen. I don't wanna break it down into such minute points and spend all morning on it, but I do wanna say this. For many times, it's easy for us to think, by this, people will know you're my disciples if you love. He says, no, no, if you love one another. It's not just feeling good for someone. It's not being for someone. It's actually doing the work of actively and selflessly loving people. And to love one another is the way that we show who God is. It's the way God has united us around the authority of Jesus Christ to go into all the world, to preach and to teach and to baptize and to bring people into discipleship. Why? Because the love of God compels them and compels us. So how can I love God, live in the love of God and love one another? the exact way God did it. So let's just do this as quickly as possible. Let's look at his description of love. Love is patient. It doesn't mean just to wait for one another. It means actually being able to endure injury without seeking retaliation. Love allows you to be taken advantage of. Love is kind. This is active goodness toward another person. It's doing those small little things that are meaningful that makes a person feel valued and wanted. And we don't do it. Again, I, I don't wanna keep hammering this nail until it's totally embedded, but I need to. And that is, we're not kind, so they think we're kind. We're not good, so they think we're good. We're actually loving them in such a way that we can reveal Jesus to them and show his kindness. Love does not envy. Envy's hard because you're always gonna have someone in the world who has more than you, who has accomplished more than you, or maybe they haven't earned it or not, but they have a place that you wish you would have. And we know what jealousy and envy is. Jealousy is a horrible thing. Listen to what Proverbs 27, four says. Wrath is fierce, anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? And if you've ever been struck with jealousy and you have to deal with the pain and the fear of someone taking someone from you that you love, or that they've traded their affection for someone else. If you've ever experienced that, the anger and the panic that's in you, you know what a horrible thing it is, but love does not allow envy, does not allow what someone else has to allow us to hate. Love does not boast. The opposite of jealousy is promoting yourself over other people. It's using what you do have and the gifting that you do have. And this was a reoccurring issue in the Corinthian church. Well, I follow Paul, but I follow Apollos. Well, I speak in tongues and you don't, and I have money and riches, and they were constantly segregating themselves rather than uniting themselves. So love is not jealous and does not envy. It also does not boast. It does not make what you have in life something that makes you feel better than others. So love is not proud. It's not arrogant. It's not puffed up. We do this in so many ways in our culture. Social media is a curse Yes, there's some good things that come from social media. Everything can be good and everything can be used for evil, but we live in a world where boasting, man, we will pump up our success because we want people to think we're something that we know we're not. And we will hide our failures. We will post, we'll take picture after picture after picture to get the right look and get rid of 74 pictures that are probably the more accurate look because we just don't want people to see us for anything what we really know we are. And love does not present itself as something it's not. And a person who is loved by Jesus is able to go in with all the blemishes and scars and failures because it really promotes the fact that Jesus loves all of us as we were while we were yet enemies. He died for us. Love does not dishonor or love does not dishonor others. It doesn't take other people out. It doesn't spread rumors or gossip about people that make you feel better or take someone that needs to come down a notch. That's not our job. Don't you know that life will take people back to where they belong? That's what I've discovered. I don't need anyone else's help. Humility comes in doses. And we love people through their most difficult moments so they experience the gracious love of God. Love is not self-seeking, does not... Do what it does so others will notice him. Love is not easily angered. I need to camp on this one. It's been a journey my entire life. I've always had a temper. I try to hide it. I don't do such a good job of hiding it. My wife will tell you that one of the reasons I never play poker is I don't know how to fake I don't have a fake face. If I'm unhappy, it's readable. When I'm happy that one day a year I'm happy, you'll see it. I don't hide my emotions very easily. And I find myself getting angry at some of the dumbest things. And I admit this openly. The stuff that makes me the most angry is, is ridiculous compared to some of the things that should make me angry that don't. And here's what I've realized. Anger comes from pride. What makes you the most angry is when your pride's offended. That's why I'm an angry driver. Because when I'm driving down the road and someone decides they're more important than me and they jump out in front of me and turn 12 feet later and I have to stop and I miss the light that I could have been through on my way to where I needed to go because they were more important to me, they should die. I honestly think that. They should die a horrible death. Where does that come from? Because I hate to admit it as your preacher, but it's true. The first thing I wanna scream is get out of the left lane. Why are you driving slower than you can? Go back to Kansas for the love. Always range line, left lane, Kansas license plate. For the, I'm not making it up, do the math. So anyway, I'm like, get out of there. And what I realize is, this is horrible. All joking aside now, this is horrible. What I've concluded is, you're not as important as me. How dare you stop me from getting what I wanted? Anger comes from pride. And if there is one person, one beautiful person who had all the right in the world to rain his anger down on a group of people for saying, who are you to judge me? It would have been Jesus and he chose not to because his love defeated his pride and his anger and he loved well. Oh, in a world that is so angry right now, it is one shove away from a massive brawl. Wouldn't it be awesome? If God's people started loving those who didn't deserve to be loved, so they would know what love really is? Love does not keep record of wrongs. And we thank God that He has demonstrated that, right? Love finds no pleasure in unrighteousness. It doesn't find it cute, doesn't find it funny, doesn't continue to support those little moments where the wrong that is done appears to be in our world today greater than when right is done. This is where Paul's wisdom is needed. And I love how this comes together because love works the will of God. I, I like to play with words, but I'm not trying to be cute here. Love works. And the only way you know love works is to let love work. We're living in a world of hatred. How's it going? Horribly. Everyone is so tense about everything right now. Everyone's fearing what's gonna happen that first week of November and how the losing side's gonna act and how the winning side's gonna act. And everybody's walking around with keeping track of records and holding people to be inferior or superior. And we're living in all of this. And I want you to know that love works. Listen to what it says, verse seven. Love protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. The wisdom that Paul is giving a group of people that were divided rather than unified is the same message he's giving us today. The love that God showed you works. Let it work. Again, this is not any of us walking out of here today going, I've got three things I need to be more loving. That's okay. That's a good start. But that's really not going to get you there. If trying harder worked, we'd all be better people, wouldn't we? It would have worked. But it doesn't work. Trying harder and wanting to be different doesn't change anything. So where does the power come from? The power comes from the gospel. The gospel is the power to love. I'll explain it this way. To love the way Paul is calling us to love is to be toward others the way God was towards you in Jesus. The way you and I are going to live lives that love with the power that is needed in the world today is to allow the gospel message, the work of God through Jesus Christ, the man on the cross and the work on the cross through the power of the resurrection to change us. And we can offer that to a world who needs to know what real love is and to receive real love. Because love is the character of God. 1 John 4 says God is love. I don't wanna make too much of this, but I wanna make enough of it. It doesn't say God loves, it says God is love. It is his character. He doesn't do this against his will. It is natural for him to love and he has created us to be people of love. The world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So how do we go about this? How do we show love like this? It's a simple two-step process. I don't wanna oversimplify it, but it's simple. The first is you have to receive love like this. You have to let yourself be loved by Jesus. What does that mean? You need to confess sin and receive the blood of the cross because the work of the cross is meaningless if the blood of the cross never touches you. So to receive it is not simply to admit, yeah, Jesus has saved me, blah, blah, No, no, it's to receive this overwhelming love that keeps no record of wrong, that is not boastful, that is not arrogant, that seeks my good. To receive it and allow that to penetrate your soul in such a way that the natural response when you're loved is to love in return. I always remember our oldest son, Alex, when he was a, he's a shy little boy, very, very thoughtful, but a bit bashful. And I remember one of the first Christmases, he got it. He was three or four, just toddling around the house, cute as can be, and he would open a present. And as soon as he opened it, before he would touch it, he would go, aww, and walk across the room and hugged everybody. He didn't know who gave it to him. They weren't even in the house. But everybody in the circle got a hug from this little boy because he was overwhelmed by the generosity of somebody. He had to express it. God built us for that. So look hopefully to the love that's available to us rather than a burden. We have to receive the love because the work of the cross is meaningless if the blood of the cross never touches us. And the second thing we have to do is we have to reflect his love, which has been the core of this entire message. If God is patient, if God is kind, if God does not keep record of wrongs, if God is not boastful, if God seeks what is righteous, then we can too. Because his spirit is inside each one of us who have been saved by the blood of Christ. And we can reflect that love, that life-changing love to everyone we meet, even those people who get in my way. See, the problem is not with the people who get in my way. The problem is with my heart, who can become offended when I don't get my way. I need to love anyway and watch that love change me and change them. First John 3:16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. See, the gospel is not that Jesus is not just that Jesus gave his life for us. He gave his life for us so that we can lay down our lives for one another. And I want you to notice something. You you may not have picked this up, but it's present. If you take the description, those 15 verbs that Paul uses to describe love, you can take them all the way back to almost every chapter in the previous writing. He is showing them that the problem that they were struggling with was not their theology. It was their hearts. The love of Christ was not being lived out by them with one another. He brings it all together. I'd like you to take the elements for the Lord's Supper that you've grabbed when you came into the room this morning. And if you don't have them, feel free to go out to any of the exits and there's a table set outside with those elements available to you. Before we unwrap them, I want us to think together. We know what love is, that the man on the cross went to that cross and did the work of the cross so that you and I might be his. His love bought us. It redeemed us from the marketplace of sin. There's no longer a price He purchased us and he set us free. And in his freedom, he said, follow me. And we get to do that. We get the experience of walking with our savior and experiencing all that he has for us. So this morning when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming to the world that he died for our sins, but we also... Hold on to the promise that around that great table of which we've been invited, you and I sit at that table at the invitation of Jesus, but never forget for a moment that there's not a person around that table who's not around that table, not just because of Jesus, but because somebody who followed Jesus told us about it. We get to go to this party because somebody on this earth invited us on behalf of Jesus. And so when we gather, it's not just that we're loved today, it said, he has given us a love to share, a love that may change the eternity of someone else. So let the blood of the cross change your soul and let the blood of the cross be our message. Let's pray. Father, we receive your gift. You gave us your son in all of his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his gentleness. He demonstrated for us what real love is and we weren't deserving. Today, we still aren't, but we are yours. And we have a message, Father, that we wanna tell other people about how good you are, how kind you are, how generous and loving you are. Jesus, we want the world to know what you did for us. In a world that wants to fight against religious standards and rules and laws, we wanna stand up and say, let love win. Holy Spirit, we're grateful that love works. Teach us how to use it well. Guide us each and every day to make it less about us and more about you. We receive you today. We eat and drink to your glory and honor, to our benefit, and a message for this lost world. We pray these things through the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast.